Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. What is the history of disability accessible design? And how does this history get written? In this episode of Contra, I continue to talk to historians Elizabeth Guffey and Bess Williamson about this topic. We focus on the ways that law and design shape understandings of disabled people, whether as consumers, workers, or activists. And we get to hear more about Guffey and Williamson's new book, where they propose a disability theory of design. I remember one of the things that I saw in the archive somewhere, I can't even remember where, um, was like Justin Dart, who is one of the disabled people who was behind pushing the ADA, um, also had created in the aftermath of the ADA, this like huge marketing campaign about why companies should first of all think of disabled people as consumers. And it had it had this like interesting spin that was like, if you don't do stuff for all these consumers, then you're gonna like lose out on business. Like, and we hear that repeated kind of all the time now. Um, but it really was the sort of like first like citizenship, then consumption, and those things are intimately tied together and justifying the existence of the other, um, which, you know, as we've all kind of talked about, like raises all these questions about, you know, w- the citizenship status of people who are not able to consume luxury and, or even kind of like middle-class amenities. Um, but I wanted to tie this back to the disability theory of design too, because um the way that Elizabeth, you were describing it earlier, I thought was so interesting that um, design has become a way of like curing or removing barriers for disabled people. And there's, of course, like this longer trajectory of that in the rehabilitation profession and in technology design in general. So, you know, Bess and I, we've written a, a lot about prosthetics. Elizabeth, you have that great stuff about the history of the wheelchair. Um, which most, like, I don't really know anybody else who's writing about the history of the wheelchair. It's like really necessary and kind of like the elephant in the room and like all of these stories. Um, but so what is the difference between the design theory of disability that existed in like the early and mid 20th century and the one that is kind of emerging now? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question, because I think the one that's emerging now, you can actually be tracing it back through these themes that we've all been talking about. You can start to see it emerging, and it starts to separate away from the social model. And I would say that's happened in the 80s and into the 90s, and it's especially, I think, with the the ADA itself, where design starts becoming this really important thing that's treated separately from a larger social movement. The stuff you guys are talking about, the neoliberal uh, aspect, I don't get that sense within the social model as it was playing out at that time, but boy, does it start kicking in with design. Uh, yeah, so I think Would that you say like deep, a depoliticized form of disability identification, do you think, or? Yeah, it is really, isn't it? I mean, I, mean, I was just, um, 
you know, Elizabeth and I are still trying to figure out what this design model disability <laughs> is <laughs> hot on hot on the near to, or soon to be hot on the presses. But um, but, you know, this this idea that, you know, OK, uh, there's overlap with both medical and social you know, models, right? That um, the, you know, sort of what what design you have access to, or, you know, are you sort of diagnosed with needing a certain device or whatever, but there's also moments in which design approaches to addressing disabled people's lives sort of become separate from both of those, right? Because like a, to construct a ramp, you don't know who's going to use it necessarily, right? And and the there's no sense of like diagnosis, like you must have this particular condition in order to use a ramp, right? Or a lever-shaped door handle, or you know, to, uh, in a contemporary sense, we can think of like caption videos, right? There's so many. There's a lot of different reasons why you might be um, using those. Uh, but you know, when does that sort of become an ideology? Um, or sort of an ideological approach to disability. And for me, there is a, you know, sort of one version there that is depoliticized, right? Which is like, we build the ramp, then we never have to talk about disability anymore. Like, okay. or as we all know, the, when you call or email or whatever to say like, is this accessible? And people say it's ADA compliant. And you're like, ah, well, let's just, let's, <laughs> let's check out, you know, what exactly does that mean to you? Because chances are whoever's saying that hasn't actually read, you know, the latest code. So, you know, um, what they, um, you know, they usually mean a certain, a certain set of things. So um, that that becomes, you know, sort of different from the the openness and questions that might come about um, when you act about, ask about access um, without, you know, sort of this predetermined sense of what that may be. And I'd also add into that, there's, um, you increasingly find in the press and base, even that designers themselves speak, this question, I think Meryl Alper really addresses it in terms of technology, but it's really also interface um, of this idea of the gift, uh, you know, the designer is giving to disabled people. And of course, the pushback that we've seen, although it's not been articulated fully in this context, is this idea of integrating disabled people into the design process. But at the same time, that too is also reifying design itself as the solution to disability. So it starts to reinforce the narrative that we're talking about. Yeah. There seems to be um, like, and this is happening so quickly, maybe even just in the last year or two, I think mm -hmm. because of um, people like Liz Jackson, like taking some of these critiques like directly to designers and um, kind of setting up almost these like natural experiments of social interactions, you know, where like these ideas are being tested and refined um, that, you know, there are these histories, of course, and present day examples of disabled people like designing things for themselves, for ourselves. And then also, um, you know, what happens to the user expert? How does the user expert start to transform into like the dominant, like the dominant expert? Is that possible? Like what has to change? And it's so interesting how quickly like theory is developing around that too. So I wonder, is some of that informing how you all are thinking about the design model of disability? Yeah, I mean, there are all these new terms that we're hearing too, which is coming exactly out of what you're talking about. I mean, it's a real fulcrum of creativity. It's fascinating in its own way. And let me just say that but Bess and I have talked about, we're not really endorsing or saying that there's something wrong. We were kind of just acting as scholars and trying to kind of trace a bigger picture to place all this. 
but those words that are coming out like access fail, which I've written about, or um, crypto science, Amy, or um, think of Ashley Shue's techno ableism, or Liz Jackson comes up with the dongle too. It, uh, all of that stuff is really coming out of this mix in which design is really, really being loaded on about what it does and can do and what it um, has done for disabled people too. Yeah. I'll add also Louise Hickman has this great discussion of access labor, which I think is really important and kind of the thread that runs beneath all of these things is like who is doing the making and then what are the labor politics of that? Or in her case, she's writing about cart transcribers who are often like in a completely different place but their labor appears on a screen and then there are all these like labor relations issues too between like mm-hmm. the universities that hire them and the users and stuff. Well, Bess and I were writing about something that somebody had just alluded to me to about a month or two ago about this cafe um, run by robots in Tokyo, uh, which is fascinating, you know, and it's, but it turns out that the robots are actually um, just avatars for disabled people who are working from their home. Uh, and it has been touted as this, I mean, it's really a promotional effort, um, but it's being touted as this way to bring disabled people into the workforce. And Japan, of course, has really serious labor issues with the aging of its population. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, this was being uh, proclaimed as a way, you know, to use the efforts of these people who are not in a, interacting with the rest of society and so on and so forth. But yeah, it brings up interesting other questions too. They're being paid the minimum wage. Uh, it brings up other labor issues there too. The technology is enabling, but it also, in many ways, it also restricts us because technology only enables as much as the person who's made the technology, the designer has uh, thought about these things. Yeah. And in these kinds of contexts where someone is being paid a very poor wage, it really like the the system that benefits from that is um, not the disabled person because the disabled person may get other kinds of supports if they are not able to work like government supports. Um, which are fraught in all sorts of ways too, obviously. But the system that benefits is like the macro economy that is also not working in for, to the benefit of the disabled people. So, you know, these are the types of critiques that like Marxist geographers of disability um, and people like Marta Russell like mm. talked about for a really long time. But now we're in this moment where disability justice is emerging as a new framework and really challenging disability rights and the way that it thinks about like disabled people but also like collectively Um, and so we're kind of like having these conversations again Um, and I think it's really productive and important and it sort of goes to like another question that I have which is about the implications of these histories that we study for present day politics Um, like why does it matter for people engaged in dis- various forms of disability struggle or policymakers or whomever to understand the way these stories and the ways that we're telling them. I mean, there's, there's so many implications. I mean, I think, you know, the really big ones are the ones that you all, that you both just articulated around sort of like who's in control, you know, who's in power in these projects, right? It all comes back, back to in many ways, you know, it's, it's not the object of design. It's the process that tells us, you know, 
speaks a lot to its its potential outcome in terms of you know what were the factors involved. Um, but you know, I I think also in terms of you know I I think you know to get back to our original question of like why why now why did you know did these um, stories seem to be coming out so much more now than a decade ago when we all started sort of started working on it. Um, and I think there's also an overall kind of sharpening of critical discourse around design, right? Um, and, you know, while, of course, that critical discourse goes, you know, back through, you know, Mar at least Marx, if not before, um, you know, when I think about how when I started to work on this, and even when I look back at my own dissertation, uh, you know, there was a very sunny point of view around designing in response to disability, which is to say that basically any design effort was considered to be a good one, right? That, um, I mean, you know, in the worst cases, what I see it is that design students who are, you know, churning out these projects often without a lot of consultation with disabled people are always sort of awarded for even making an effort. Like you're such a good person for, for thinking about this, or, you know, this is such a good application of design without kind of a critical thought about it. But there's so much other conversation going on in the design world to sort of critique, right? Whether it's critique of a whole digital, you know, utopia that we were supposed to be getting with social media, you know, or, um, or other, you know, you know, sort of state level projects and so on around, you know, climate and so on that, you know, it, to me, there's still a huge opportunity for disabilities to be more central in that broader critique, right? This is so often sort of in the shadows of it or not discussed, but there's a tremendous amount, I think, of of overlap between the sort of central questions that folks in, you know, sort of the field of critical design or just in the broader kind of critical conversation around technology, you know, so much of it seems to interweave um, with dis disability studies kind of conversation that I think it, you know, it brings these, it often, there's just so often are the, these um, very clear precedents where it's like the disability rights movement, while it had many factors, I still see it as like one of the most powerful consumer driven sort of quote unquote user driven design critiques of the 20th century. Right. Which is like all of this stuff that you made that you thought was going to that you thought was the ideal version of design didn't work for a significant se segment of the population, pushed back and made significant change. So I think that, you know, that's really a model for thinking about, like, who are we missing when we invent stuff? Absolutely. So um, you all are developing that model for a book that you're editing. Is that right? Do you want to say a little bit about that? So Elizabeth and I uh, have been editing this book and it's um, it should be out next year, mid middle of next year. Um, so we're in the final kind of stages right now called Making Disability Modern Design Histories. Um, so it's basically, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a lot of case studies that kind of, you know, tangentially relate to the histories that we've already been tracing, but it goes back into the 18th century um, to the present of um, some great, amazing case studies of architectural sites, of, you know, objects, of digital platforms, of um, all kinds of things. And as we put this together, yeah, we started to say, you know, it's, there's something in common here. And, you know, we can't say that what's in common is like, who's doing the designing, who's receiving the designing, you know, whether they were good or sort of bad examples, because it, it runs the gamut. But what we're seeing is a common kind of belief that design is a way of 
of addressing disability. Um, you know, it's not a tool of, or it's to say, it's not always a tool of medical change or social administration or whatever, but in itself, it seems to offer this kind of particular um, perspective. And that makes the stakes of, you know, what do we consider design, a designer, and so on to be very high. And potentially empowering as well as we are starting to talk about now, but it does give a kind of history and a kind of heft to those ideas, uh, showing that this has been around actually for a while and we need to be thinking of it seriously. And yes, bringing critique to it, if only to make it be more dynamic as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best essays, or oh, they're all great in different ways, uh, but one of the essays um, is fascinating to me because they opened up new ways for me to think about what disability is and the environment. Um, Deborah Parr has a great essay in there about um, air and the right to breathe uh, as well great way of re starting to really think about the, what it is that we're talking about when we're designing environments too. Um, yeah, and I should say while there, there are a lot of sort of familiar names in there to folks in the disability studies world, um, like Jay Verdi and Bonda Lieberman, who's kind of like, I feel like is, is kind of our fourth in our team of design historians of disability um, and so on. But yeah, Deborah is usually a, fashion historian and, and writing about um, scent as a medium of art and design. And, and uh, so it's really exciting to have her perspective on, on sort of grappling with like, what is this, you know, as sense she, as she researched it, realizing that there's this whole discourse around scent as a, an access issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I look forward to reading all of it and especially that article. Cause I think that, um, that is an example of the types of disability issues that were still kind of like largely illegible, like in the earlier days of the ADA and have not yet percolated into like the codes and standards and things like that, but that are very much part of like the disability justice conversation and um discussions about disability and its intersections with kind of like environmental racism and um, related issues. So I think it's really exciting to have scholarly work also that helps to support the work that people like designers and activists are doing around those areas. Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of, of, uh, you know, tracing the history of, of, access and design, I think all of us have had different ways of trying to articulate, you know, kind of the, uh, the stages of access, right. Or the, you know, the code versus kind of the basics or what, what, what actually happens, um, what's common in a given time. And then kind of what is actually needed or asked for, um, that, you know, may fall by sort of under the radar of, of codes or, just may never be documented or whatever or never fulfilled or never achieved and that you know disability justice from my understanding of it um you know that it it helps me i don't actually I tend to use the term writing it as much um but you know thinking about it tends to help me think about how, what the limitations of rights are or legal legal rights right that there's something there's something else out there um and and they this you know this comes up so often in terms of talking about access as well, right? It's like, you know, for me, I tend to use access with a little bit of skepticism or, you know, 
refer, you know, the title of my book, Accessible America, right, refers to a kind of framework for access that developed within a specific historical moment in the United States, right? So it's sort of linked to various quote unquote American ideals around independence and self-sufficiency in the post um, World War II period. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of these terms, you know, it strikes me similarly seek to kind of distinguish the the mechanisms of creating um, access from, you know, some of the other, uh, you know, the ideals of access, to be honest, you know, because it's like there's this very utopian possibility there that so, so frequently we're identifying kind of where it falls short. Yeah, I really think that that move of distinguishing between laws and standards and codes and something else, something that's like more, more expansive, more utopian, maybe has actually been part of the history of access all along that like, from the moment that any standards were created, there was the caveat that this is the floor, not the ceiling. And we ought to be, you know, trying to do so much more. And in like all of these cases, the ideologies are very different, but that move kind of exists. So I think that that also puts a little bit of pressure on disability justice as a framework to really like think about um, how people have sort of been making this distinction all along, but what is distinct in this moment. And there are some really big things that are distinct specifically around race and gender and sexuality and um kind of orientations towards market logics and things like that. But sometimes it's not as obvious. And yet at the same time, I, I guess as um, somebody who's bumping up against the laws themselves, uh, the laws are so flimsy as it is and so hard to enforce. Uh, it, to me, it, they don't feel like a um, bottom or you know a kind of base to build on. To me, most of them still feel quite unattainable. They're written very idealistically, and it's very, very hard to actually enforce them, even to know what they're referring to most of the time. We still struggle to figure out what they really mean in our day-to-day -day lives, which is the case with most American law. I mean, you know, that is our, the system that we have, very idealistic goals, and it's very, very difficult to adjudicate them in real life. Uh, but in my experience, even that, is so difficult to achieve the idea. I do like the idea of a kind of greater justice that transcends things that can just be captured in code, which is so limiting in its own way, but it's so complicated. Yeah, it's like there has to be still accountability toward a foundation and we expend most of our energy just trying to get the foundation to happen. So it's like sometimes hard to imagine what more there could be. Yeah, and I mean, for me, this, you know, what this comes back to is sort of a, a big question that I found myself circling around in, as I was finishing up this book, which is like, you know, is design fundamentally kind of the way that design operates in the contemporary and recent historical, you know, present? Uh, does is it possible to have a kind of just design or an, an accessible design? Um, and this is like really gonna get into the weeds, but for intense, you know, for real close readers of my book, there's this section at the end where I try to grapple with the idea of crypt design or um, cryptistemology to use a term that you know Robert McGrew and others um, had a discussion about. Um, was I 
basically, I mean, partly because Robert McGrew is one of the editors of the series um, that my book was published in, but um, but just also in general, I kind of wanted to to grapple with that question of like, is there a, such a thing as as a crypt design, which is to say that sort of acknowledges and comes from the kind of community driven um, approaches of disability politics of the later 20th century. Um, and I ended up with a kind of ambiguous statement, but I, you know, I did, I wanted to question whether design ultimately can be a kind of tool of, of um, you know, non-imperialist, non-capitalist kind of production, because design as its practice is almost always, you know, is sort of inherently tied up in those same mechanisms, right? Design is, is industrial, design is commercial, and design you know, the parts of design that we often love are the ones that are deeply rooted in that, that are luxurious, that are beautiful, you know, that are desirable, that make us feel hot in, you know, a certain way or or accepted or comfortable or whatever. And so there is this part of me that also thinks, you know, that this is um, kind of in keeping with the the eternal kind of utopian shortfall of design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That um, that has been really well. It's been pretty well um, chronicled, and if, if you all have been listening to this um, nice try prod- podcast from Curb, that has all these like utopian things. I I'm waiting for them to call us about the accessibility utopia. Um, but I, I think it does link to that a little bit. That there's some, some serious ways in which design itself um, kind of is is an uh, um, an imperfect tool for a lot of these social goals. Yeah. The thing that, that what you're saying brings up for me is um, when Kelly Fritch and I were working on the Crypt Technoscience Manifesto, we were thinking a lot with Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, which is basically about, like she's, she says that technoscience is non-innocent. So it's simultaneously wrapped up in all of these like imperialist and capitalist networks of production People are like dying in mines to make like computer parts. People are like, you know, getting seriously injured, sewing blue jeans, like things like that. Um, And yet there are these things that technology does that have like positive social benefits for some people. Um, And we were trying to think about like, you know, what does this mean in a disability context when crip politics is supposed to align very strongly against like colonialism etc and the thing about it is that like a lot of our models for crypt politics still emerge in this kind of like majority world setting and so they're not necessarily built they don't necessarily have built-in solidarities that they ought to um and so some things that could maybe approximate the ideal or like unbuilt designs like things that people designed and decided not to make because the impact Mm. of like being entangled with all these production processes would outweigh the kind of like benefits to people um and you you find a little bit of discussion about that like when people problematize like the iphone is this kind of like we can make all these accessibility apps but then who's producing the iPhone and how is that causing debility and things like that? One of the things that I um, wrote an essay on for making disability modern is this thing I use as an assistive device, the walking bag, which is Japanese. And it's just 
it's great in a lot of ways because it's small and maneuverable, provides support. It kind of like tricks my brain into thinking I'm more mobile than I am and it makes it then easier for me to get my muscles moving. But um, it's not recognized as um, an assistive device in the US. It looks like a um, rolling suitcase. <laughs> so it's fascinating to me right there to be using an assistive device that's not recognized as an assistive device, <laughs> which then brings up this question, well, what is an assistive device? Uh, and it plays out constantly in my day-to-day -day life, you know, where people casually joke, are you from out of town? You know, and I'm, I live here. I've lived here for, uh, you know, 20 years. But also, you know, people try to, um, valets at ho you know, hotels try to like grab the thing away from me so that they can store it for me and stuff like that. And it's just fascinating to me how there actually is, we have very limited ideas of what design for disability can be. And it, I'm not saying there's something strange about that. It makes perfect sense, but it can be quite odd and limiting if you go anywhere outside of what's expected of a disability device or disability tools in general. Mm -hmm. So kudos to the guy who um, invented it, but it's never been, it was um, actually distributed within the US, which is where I found it at a travel store, but then it ran into all kinds of um, legal issues. And um, I think it was driven also off the market by um, these four wheel rolling suitcases that you see everywhere now. It innovated that, but um, Samsonite, for example, took over that design and mass produced it as in a way that's no not particularly um, usable for disabled people like me. The uh, Japanese one is very, very strong and it's built in certain ways that are different. But anyway, it goes into talk about like, that person did go ahead and build <laughs> his dream of creating that device, but um, whether it ever has really found a good audience for it is another question too, and how it held up in the marketplace is mm -hmm. questionable. Mm -hmm. Um, Elizabeth, I mean, uh, I love that essay, that chapter so much, I'm, and um, I'm excited for everyone to read it in our in our book um, project. But it uh, maybe dovetails in with the crypt techno science issue that Amy and Kelly put together too. You know, I mean, one of the things that strikes me when we're talking about utopian design or the shortfalls of design and reality is that design writing is also you know an area that has been so fruitful, I think, for sort of imagining access beyond what, you know, has existed. So there's an the amazing three-person authored piece in the in that Catalyst issue by um, Ashley Shu. Now I'm going to remember, not remember everyone's name, but Mallory Nelson and um, Bethany Stevens. Stevens, yeah. Stevens, thank you, um, about their own devices and just what they call them. And I mean, it's so fanciful and it's these great drawings and stuff. And it's like, you know, I have a bottomless, like, well of interest in reading pers people's personal, um, you know, reflections on the design things in their lives. And so often those those personal reflections have to do with disability in some way. Um, and I think that, you know, when you actually bring together someone's life, their community, their, you know, um, their devices or their spaces or whatever, you get at some of those kind of beyond, beyond access um, dimensions of design. Yeah. yeah, that's actually the book that I'd love to see written. It's a bunch of people writing about their access um, um, devices or whatever else. Well, I was going to say almost exactly the same thing that Something I've been thinking about, um, and this podcast is part of it, is 
how to create more archives about disability and design and how to leave evidence and um, which is a, a term from Mia Mingus like um, if these archives that we use to write our books you know they're so productive for us and they also have these gaps like how do we create an archive of the present day that includes like people's stories about how they use technology, um, the technologies themselves, the texts and things like that. Um, and so some of the content in Catalyst was actually kind of an early stab at that, especially the, there's a section that has like four makers and they're talking about kind of their design practices. Yeah, it could be, um, I, I, I'm like imagining some sort of like online archive of disability and technology that has these like historical and contemporary examples could be a cool project. I think that's brilliant, Amy. That's very, very um, smartly thought out. NEH, if you're listening to this, thank you <laughs> okay, all so much. This was such a wonderful conversation and I look forward to continuing it. Um, and thank you uh, for your time and for sharing also about your new book that's coming out, which we'll definitely put in the show notes. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra Podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.